Before you stand, but as you are turning to Mark chapter 3 for our our scripture reading this morning, just one more announcement uh, that tonight at our our evening service, obviously we'll be meeting at 6 o'clock, but we're going to shorten the service itself by just a a little bit so that at 6.45, uh, Nellie Voss, who is doing uh, mission work in in France, can come and, and give us an update on her work and how that's been going and what she's seen the Lord do since the last time that she's been able to be with us. So uh, service at at 6 and then we will uh, end a bit sooner than usual and then Nellie Voss will give us an update after that. The reading of God's word this morning comes from Mark chapter 3 verses 7 to 19. If you'll stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. This is God's word. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, They fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So far the reading of God's holy word, we give thanks for it. You may be seated. And as we come to consider this portion of scripture, let us pray for God's help. O Lord, our God, we are, as always, ever thankful that you have given us your word. That we are not left to ourselves to discover how we might seek after you. But that you have spoken. And that you have spoken of Jesus Christ, in whom we find salvation. 
And here, as he summons these, these men to be his people, his new covenant people, to start this next phase in redemptive history of ministering the gospel, we ask, O oh Lord, that we might treasure up all the more what it means to belong to your people today because of how Jesus sent them to preach his gospel. Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher. They are indeed many. And bless the reading and the preaching of your word to bring forth fruit in our hearts that we might love you more and serve you better. And we ask all of it in the precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Probably very few of us have thought about life from the perspective of a donut hole. Uh, their counterparts, uh, full, full ringed donuts, right? Get most of the press. And at the same time, if we were to view the world through the eyes of a donut hole, we might reach one of two conclusions. On the one hand, a donut hole might think that it is being cut away from the main attraction, set to the side as a second-class pastry. On the other hand, it might believe that, well, the dross is being cut away from it, trimming the excess so that the most concentrated bite of goodness can stand on its own. Now, despite appearances, my psychoanalysis of donut holes does have a point. Uh, when we look at Mark 3, 7 to 19, Jesus trims the great mass of crowds following him down to 12 disciples as those to receive his most concentrated fellowship. Just like the baker harvests the smaller lump of dough from the greater mound, while well, Jesus selects the inner circle whom he appoints to be his apostles. Now, within the scope of Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus' initial phase of ministry included his announcement of God's kingdom arriving, namely in Christ himself, bringing with it the forgiveness of sin, the healing of the needy, and confrontation with a politicized religious establishment. Here in Mark 3, 7 to 19, we have a slight and temporary recess from Jesus' engagement with that religious establishment. Here, Christ takes his followers to the seaside. He is followed by great crowds fascinated by his miraculous public ministry, and he appoints the twelve as his apostolic circle, who will serve a, a critical function for this turning point in how God is rolling out redemption in history. Now our main point, our main point is that Christ chose his 12 disciples to concentrate his kingdom in his church. Christ chose his 12 disciples to concentrate his kingdom in his church. And we will think about that in three points Popularity, places, and people. 
So let's consider first popularity. Now the the two-step portion of scripture before us traces the story of, of Jesus retreating to the sea, having a large crowd of followers, and then going up a mountain to select his chosen apostles from those followers. Now the first stage then of this narrative is in verses 7 to 12, recounting Jesus' Jesus's teaching and work beside the sea. If we remember back to last time, though, Jesus' final confrontation, final of five, confrontation with the Pharisees ended with them running off to join forces with the politicians of their day, right? So we see that in, in Mark 3, 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, right? The, the political uh, aspect against him, how to destroy him. The Herodians were the civic leaders, of course, under the thumb of their Roman overlords and would have, inter- would have no interest no interest in supporting a new messianic figure like Jesus who might upset their status quo. The civic and religious leaders in Israel had carved out a comfortable position for themselves by accepting enough of Roman authority to buy their own seat at the table. Now, the portion of, of scripture before us shows that a great multitude was following after Jesus even as, even as he tried to withdraw, to have some quieter moments away from the public eye. In other words, in other words, despite the displeasure of those civic and religious leaders towards Christ, he was still very much growing in popularity. Whereas they ran off to join forces to work against him, the crowds were following him. Even as he left where he could be conveniently accessed, well, crowds from all around still managed to find and pursue him. Now, we, we've said throughout our, our studies in this gospel, that it is about answering the question, who is Jesus and what is his kingdom like? The whole gospel, especially in these opening stages of it, is about telling us who Jesus is and what his kingdom is like. And in this passage, in verses 7 to 12, the issue of his identity really comes to the forefront, doesn't it? So, so Mark listed a number of locations from which this crowd had gathered. Galilee, Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Idumea, the, the Jordan region, and, and beyond it, Tyre and Sidon. I think it was 2009, uh, and you too came on tour, and they came to Atlanta when I was living in Birmingham. And even though, right, it was a three-hour drive, um, parking was a mess, and tickets were expensive, I made sure to go. Why? Right? You know, 
You cross the distance because you hear something big was happening worth seeing. And so too, not just the people in Israel, but people from around it, people from far beyond its borders, heard that something big was happening in Galilee. Unlike when I knew who was in concert, these people were gathering precisely in order to find out more about who Jesus is. The the events, though, show us how Christ constantly defies worldly expectations. So let's, let's think about verses 9 to 12 together. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And then note a really, perhaps, it's at least striking, if not seemingly odd, Conclusion, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Don't tell people about me. I think that that's something to note here that Jesus had a tremendous teaching platform, the demons recognized him as as God's true son, the Messiah, who is the second person of the Trinity. And then Jesus orders that his identity not be revealed. And I think we have to pause to ask, why did Jesus not want his identity known and what that teaches us? It seems intuitive To us, doesn't it, that the best way to success, particularly for our considerations today for the gospel, is to get as much recognition as possible. Broadcast our names, saddle up to the most influential people. That's the best course forward, right? Now, I already admitted that I went to see this U2 concert, but isn't it part of sort of evangelical culture that a lot of Christians want to claim one of, at least one of their members as a representative for our faith? And we say, why? No matter how fragile that link might be, it helps make Christianity cool, doesn't it? It's been all over the news that the former pastor of Hillsong in New York City has come back to social media as if that should be an event uh, after you know, the, the fallout of a fidelity scandal. And so in light of that, I, I think we pause to ask, well, does it help us to buddy up to the elites? To me, it, it seems like Hillsong's pastor didn't do any favors for Christ's renown, even though he was friends with Justin Bieber. And I do think that that takes us to something more focused. I want to think with 
and for our young people for a moment. Now, whether you're in school, in later stages of school, or maybe even fresh into the the workforce, in all aspects of those stages of life, I think particularly today, you are likely to face immense pressure to line up with the culture and their values, to strive for success, perhaps even in the church, in worldly ways, and to make your understanding of Jesus conform to what the society says is good and acceptable. And young people, we, we see in this passage that the Pharisees worked for a civic religion alongside the Herodian politicians, but, but what truly attracted attention was when Jesus had a message that was not the world's and was not lined up with what even the religious in the world wanted to accomplish. Jesus did not achieve victory by cuddling up to the elites and by embracing the status quo as much as he comfortably could deal with. Jesus avoided growing notoriety precisely because he did not want the sort of success that big ad campaigns could achieve. And I think perhaps more pointedly for how we think practically and, and find ourselves in that situation, the apostles, his disciples, his true followers, saw that true satisfaction was with Christ among his true people rather than in the limelight with the crowds. They opted out of cultural popularity and found rest with Christ in the gospel of God's forgiveness and renewal. And so young people in particular, although really this is for all of us, in particular, note that satisfaction lies outside of pleasing the status quo. We seek after where Jesus is. Popularity was not Jesus' goal, nor should it be ours. And that brings us to our second point, places, places. So, when we come to the next section of our passage for today, we find a striking shift of of geography, right? The places uh, where Jesus goes from, from the sea to a mountain where he commissions the 12 apostles. Now, can you think, uh, those of you who, who spend time reading your Bible and have for, for an amount of time, can you think of any major biblical event that pushes from the sea to a mountain resulting in the commissioning of a 12? You don't have to answer out loud. Please don't, actually. But the Exodus events, Right? The Exodus events where God brought Israel out of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, brought them to Mount Sinai, 
and constituted the nation of Israel as 12 tribes, well, that, that set of events defined Israel's paradigm of salvation. These events shaped how they processed and felt the very notion of who God is and how he acted in revelation toward his people, particularly for salvation. And in Mark 3, starting at verse 13 then to 19, Jesus repeats these events, summing up Israel's paradigm-creating encounter with God, here constituting the new covenant church. In the previous section that we've already thought about, Jesus was recognized as the Son of God as he ministered next to the sea. And as when God brought Israel through the Red Sea and led them to Mount Sinai, Christ left the seaside and led his disciples up a mountain. And then, rather than the twelve tribes of Israel, Christ appoints twelve apostles to be the church's foundation. And so then we have a, a new beginning of sorts for God's people. We should note how... Again, here, Christ took on God's role in relating to God's people. Although the, the point that Jesus is God the Son will, I, I really hope, not be surprising to anyone here, I think we do need to pause for a moment to reflect on, on the modern significance of Jesus taking on God's role in this story, partly because I think this just helps us read our Bible more clearly, more richly. Maybe you've heard the objection that comes from various angles, that the New Testament supposedly never just says that Jesus is God, despite not being true. The objection also shows a very narrow mentality about how reading and even inspired literature works. So, then, imagine that you have an outing planned with a friend. and So you pick up your friend and you go to the venue. And you go inside where everyone is facing a stage and a band is playing. And so you sit for a while watching this band until they finish all the songs they're going to sing, and then you both leave. And on the way home, you say to your friend, so how did you like the concert? And I think you would be very surprised if they said, we never went to a concert. Right? You would say, we just spent several hours watching the band play, and your friend says, but you never said it was a concert. So it's not. Now the point is that we actually expect people to pick up and recognize a concert even when we haven't overtly said that it's that. Right? And through this gospel, Mark not only tells you but also expects you to recognize Jesus as God, even in the parts where he doesn't say that explicitly. The first half of our passage for today included 
an explicit statement of that. Our second half of our passage today includes an implicit statement of that. Right in verse 11, Mark has outright recorded that Jesus is God the Son. And there are other parts, like this event on the the mountain, where he expects you to recognize Jesus as God because he has taken on God's role, God's identity in the story. This is why the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 11, says that the scriptures manifest the Son and Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father, ascribing unto them such names, attributes, works. When the Son or Spirit does a work that only God can do, as are proper only to God, well, then it shows that they are, in fact, God. And so, the places where Jesus ministered mark his identity as God, God leading the new exodus of salvation for his people. And that brings us to our third point. People. People. And this final point highlights the, the major implications of, of Jesus rehearsing, rehashing the events that constituted Israel as his covenant people now, now with these 12 disciples. At, at many points in our lives, I imagine at least some, if not most, perhaps all, of us have likely thought, well, it'd be great if we could just go back in time and redo some moment in our lives to get a, a fresh start at it, so to speak. Being on better footing, knowing what we know now, we could go back and, and handle that again. We wish we could reboot a situation like we reboot our iPhone. God, being God, is able to perform reboots of sorts, namely redemptive historical reboots concerning his covenant people. In the new covenant, Jesus rebooted God's covenant people, taking, taking the founding twelve to the mountain to repeat the Sinai events of, of God constituting his people. And so the church becomes the fulfillment of Israel. Israel, in the Mosaic Covenant, had continually broken the law given to them at Sinai. And so God sent them into exile. And even though he had mercy on them and by bringing them back from their scattered dwellings, the restoration was, was never quite what people hoped for. Why? Because the new exodus had not yet happened. And in Christ, God centralizes his covenant people in the church. Bringing in believers, not just from Israel, but from all the regions around it. Right? From all nations. The good news is that the new covenant is not like the one made at Sinai in the Mosaic covenant the obligations were on the people if they disobeyed they lost the land which is exactly what happened 
when Assyria and Babylon sacked Israel and Judah, taking the people captive. In the new covenant, Christ assumed all the obligations on behalf of his people. He has rendered perfect obedience to earn our citizenship in heaven. He died to cleanse us from sin. Christ has made his corporate people new, rebooting Israel in the church, but also made each member of his covenant people new. Because Christ is our renewal. And we see that magnitude of grace even in this list of 12. If, we, if you can recall to our previous weeks, whom, whom had Jesus already called? Certainly James and John, who appear in verse 17, nicknamed as the, the sons of thunder. An interesting nickname to be sure. Also Andrew, who is named in verse 18. And of course, Simon, whom Mark named first of all there in verse 16, but also also noting here in this instance that his new name in this story is Peter. What's missing? What about Levi, whom Jesus called in chapter 2, verse 13 to 17. Where is Levi? Well, if we look at verse 18, and knowing what we know from other Gospels, well, we do know, in fact, that Levi was also called Matthew. So Levi here appears named as Matthew. And I think we need to tease this out for a second. What else did we learn about Levi? He was the most unacceptable, wasn't he? Being a tax collector, a traitor against the Jews in his former life before Christ called him. One ancient commentator put it that Mark listed Matthew without noting his former name as Levi so as not to make it glaringly obvious his former way of life. For he was now their companion in the work of the gospel. Mark didn't bother to mention who Matthew used to be. And he did so because that's how Christ treats his people. Just as God renamed the patriarchs like Abraham and Jacob, Christ renames his apostles. If you want full freedom and renewal from whatever sin, temptations, and failures have plagued you in your former life, or still plague you now, if you have not professed faith in Jesus, then you want to find yourself united to Christ by faith. In Christ, whoever you were or whatever you used to be is done away with, forgiven, and renewed. The things which ought to be held against us are gone. 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a new identity, the old forgotten, in the Lord Jesus. As Christ renewed God's covenant people, we see how that also means true renewal for each of us who trust in the Savior for rescue and restoration. The world may see a donut hole as the unwanted leftovers. But God has always pulled the smaller, less glorious from the larger mass. And so today, the world may see the church, may see the church as an insignificant throwaway. God sees us as his treasured possession, claimed for himself in Christ, and redeemed and renewed for his glory. All the more, like cutting away the mass of trimming away a donut ring, Christ has removed our sin from us, separating it as far as the east is from the west, giving us full forgiveness and restoration. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that just as was the case with your people who were disobedient under under their former covenant, And just as it is with us, you do not treat us as we used to be. But you, O Lord, are the one who renews. And you have given forgiveness, restoration, and renewal in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are thankful to find ourselves among his people. Help us to be glad to be the church, the people whom Christ has called his own and gathered from apart from the rest of the world. We are glad to be the community of grace, seen by you through the lens of the Lord Jesus and his gospel work. We pray all of it in the name of Christ himself. Amen. We come to the end of our time of worship. Let's stand to sing How Beautiful.